This is the story of a murder. A particularly brutal and bloody one that took place in Broughty Ferry near Dundee towards the end of 1912. The victim was a woman called Jean Milne. John Forbes, police sergeant, Broughty Ferry Borough Police states... On Saturday, the 2nd of November 1912, at about 8.30pm, I came into the police office when the chief constable informed me that he had received a telephone message from Constable Brown that the postman, Witness Slidders, had informed him that the letterbox at Elm Grove, occupied by Miss Milne, had not been emptied for about three weeks and was now full. I was then instructed to go and investigate. My name is Niamh McDade. I'm a professor of Forensic Science at the University of Dundee, and I'm also the director of the Levy Hume Research Centre for Forensic Science at Dundee University. I think this case is, is particularly important for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that it's local to Dundee and to its environs. The murder happened in Broughty Ferry, which is not too far away from Dundee. Also, it's because the case is unsolved. As a result of that, it's useful, I think, sometimes to take a look from a, maybe a more modern day perspective on um, unsolved cases, including ones that stretch back as long as, as Jean Milne's case, to see is there anything that we know now that might be able to help, but equally, is there anything that was done back then that may have opened up avenues of, of investigation that perhaps were not pursued at that time? because maybe the science wasn't evolved or the manner and approach of the investigators weren't the same as perhaps they would be now. I took a lamp with me and went there, finding Constable Brown at the entrance gate to Elm Grove. The small gate was not locked. Constable Brown and I proceeded up the drive to the house, tried the front door and found it was locked. I then examined the big lock and saw the key was inside. The pamphlet, referred to by the witness Slidders, was on the handle of the door. We examined the house and found everything secure. The letterbox in the back entrance door to court leading to the kitchen door was full of letters. I then went to Mr Swan of Wesley's and got the use of his telephone and communicated what I had learnt to the Chief Constable and it was arranged that I would get a joiner on the following morning and make an entrance into the house. The podcast series and why we were so keen to explore it and, and or to record it, again, is really looking at, to my mind, the changes or otherwise the changes that have or have not occurred uh, across over 100 years uh, in terms of the use of science in service of justice. In particular, what the Levy Human Research Centre for Forensic Science is all about is it's looking at increasing the robust nature of science that underpins the types of evidence that appear within our courtrooms. And to unpack that a little bit, some of the areas of scientific endeavour have really developed over the last half century, whereas some of the types of evidence that are presented within our courts haven't really evolved from a scientific sense from the time that they were first conceived or first used, which is around about the time of Jean Milne's death. And so part of what we're interested in exploring in this podcast series is the evolution of science over time, the evolution of forensic science over time, and how the two have kept pace with each other or how they haven't kept pace with each other. And really exploring 
whether or not to a certain extent that's good enough. Is it good enough for us to be using the practices and methodologies of over 100 years ago still in the, in the modern day? Or are there areas for improvement? On Sunday the 3rd of November 1912 at 9am, Constable Brown and I, in company with the witness Cooley, proceeded to Elm Grove. I provided myself with a bunch of keys. I tried to open the front door check lock, but without success. I then instructed witness Cooley to break a pane of glass in the kitchen window, to unsnub the window and to enter thereby and open the front door for us, which he did. When witness Cooley opened the front door for us, he said, she's lying dead in the hall here. Like any forensic anthropologist or any forensic scientist, I enjoy working out puzzles. And I find it absolutely fascinating, quite honestly, because to say it's from, you know, early 1900s, 1912, I think, that the descriptive terms used by those individuals who first stepped into that scene are actually really powerful. There's a lot of aspects to this that are intriguing. There are a lot of aspects to it, either both culturally and societally, but also in relation to the changes that are happening in forensic science or were happening in forensic science at the time and just in science in general. Well, of course, at the heart of it is a human tragedy. A woman died a really horrific death whose murder has gone unsolved, who has not seen justice. One of the things I found extraordinary in the reports was the assumption at the outset by the police that this must have been committed by a maniac or a foreign national. That is an astonishing observation to make and would play no part in an investigation in modern times. But actually the structure and the basics of the investigation actually haven't changed an awful lot. What we're going to do in the Inside Forensic Science podcast is look in depth at how the Jean Milne case was investigated and how the case might be approached today. All the readings you'll hear throughout the podcast series are taken from the evidence files of the case against a key suspect, a man called Charles Warner, and they provide a fascinating and detailed dip into history. They're available for you to access and read in depth for yourself. You'll find links on the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at University of Dundee website. So, back to Sergeant John Forbes. As we've heard, it's early November 1912 and the local postman, Slidders, had alerted the police that the letterbox at Elm Grove, home to a woman called Jean Milne, was full. Sergeant Forbes went to investigate, then asked the local Broughty Ferry joiner, Cooley, to force an entry into the house, which Cooley duly did. We entered, I going first. There's a front hall with a cloakroom to the left, then a glass door leading to the vestibule. And at the entrance to the main hall, there is no door, but on the right-hand side, there hangs a large, heavy green curtain. And on the left-hand side, there is a lace curtain. It was then 9.20am. What follows is taken directly from Sergeant Forbes's statement of what he discovered inside the house. The two curtains were tied about three feet six inches from the ground and below the knot were drawn together so as to obscure the possibility of anyone seeing in by a window of obscured glass which looks right into the front hall and vestibule. I pulled the piece of cord off, it not being firmly tied, and we passed into the main hall. Now, there is a lot of detail coming up, 
but it's all important. So try and fix an image of the scene and the house in your head. Imagine that you are alongside Sergeant Forbes. Don't worry if you can't keep tabs on it all. We'll be returning to this scene a lot over the course of the series because it has huge potential for forensic investigation. I found about two feet nine inches from the foot of the stair, Miss Milne lying on the carpet on the floor with her head towards the entrance, her feet towards the way leading towards the dining room. On making examination, I found that she was all blood on the top of her head and her face was much swollen. She was lying on her right side, her left arm lying across her right arm, stretched out in front of her body. Her clothes were all full of blood, a half-cotton sheet doubled and covering her back and back of head. I saw at once decomposition had set in. On further examination, I found her legs were tied at the ankles with a green curtain rope. Produced number two. There, John Forbes is referring to the productions from the scene, items which are removed and kept as a source of potential evidence during the investigation. Exactly the same thing happens today, and they're still referred to as productions. I then gave instructions to Constable Brown and Witness Cooley not to touch anything until seen by the Chief Constable. We then had a look through the rooms, thinking the motive of the murder was robbery, but on a cursory examination of them, I found the only drawers that were drawn out were the three drawers in the sideboard in the dining room and a travelling case in the main hall nearby to the deceased, which was open, but not much out of order and had no appearance of being searched for money or anything else. I then told Constable Brown and Witness Cooley to remain in charge and I would go and inform the Chief Constable, which I did. And the police officers at that time, particularly John Forbes, really, I think, did a remarkable job at the crime scene. They did exactly what we teach our crime scene investigators to do now. They protected the scene. John Forbes, after the discovery of the body, uh, went to get in contact with his chief constable. Of course, he had to go and find a uh, go to a, a phone, and and um, we didn't have mobile phones back then, so there was a time delay, and he left John Brown in charge of the scene to protect it. And what the the initial police response was was to do nothing. They touched nothing, uh, and their notes um, suggested that they made sure that they recorded the scene in very great detail in that they recorded what items were where, but they didn't touch them. They just effectively put their hands in their pockets and looked, which, of course, is the best way of preserving evidence from the early stages. So I'm Commander Dave McLaren. I'm a commander within the Metropolitan Police Service, and I uh, lead on all things homicide and uh, organised crime within London. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, just to look back so far in time. Um, and, in, and in so many ways... You know, it's so primitive that the whole approach to the investigation, but actually the structure and the basics of the investigation actually haven't changed an awful lot. Um, you know, in terms of the way that we would approach an investigation now, um, you know, particularly in relation to the the sort of the really initial stages of the investigation. You know, the the if, if we call the them the, the initial investigative team. You know, they're thinking about scene preservation. They're thinking about the victim and what opportunities lie there. Uh, clearly, they're looking for witnesses. And pretty quickly, their focus um, turns to suspects. So actually, the overall investigative structure, if you like, 
um, isn't a million miles away from the you know the fundamentals of a modern day murder investigation. The biggest difference is, I guess, it's the, the, the detail. So let's turn to the detail. Jean Milne had been found dead in her home. Sergeant John Forbes has secured the scene and gone to inform the chief constable. So what would happen if this were a modern-day investigation? Professor Lucina Hackman is a practising forensic anthropologist based at the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. So once the suspicious death is discovered, police will be informed. That's usually what people do. And they'll be called in. There'll be probably first responders involved. So that may well be uniform who will attend the scene, uh, decide that there's a suspicious death or see that something's happened, and then that'll start uh, the process going. Uh, in Scotland, it'll be the MIT, so that's the major investigation team, who'll be called in to start the investigation process, um, especially if the death is obviously suspicious. As soon as you know that's a, a suspicious death, then um, cordons would be put in place, and we would limit the amount of people that would be going in and out of that address. Detective Constable Helen Ireland is a crime scene manager from Police Scotland's major investigations team in Dundee. Brody Ferry is on her patch. We'd also have a crime scene log that would then um, come into play where a police officer will stand on the front door or the back door, you know, the areas covering that address uh, to prevent anybody entering. And anyone that does require to go into the address wouldn't be documented uh, date, time and reason for entering. Um, so... Yeah, so the men, the crime, the crime scene manager and scenes of crime go to do the initial assessment. Um, today, we would wear uh, full protective clothing. Um, so that comprises of um, a, a facial mask, um, hairnet, overalls, inner gloves, overshoes, outer gloves. Uh, some circumstances, you may need goggles or um, hard hats, depending on what scene you're going into. But for a scene like Jean Milne, that is, is your box standard. Um, and you would sign into the um, the log, go into the address and basically carry out an assessment of the scene and record it by photographs, by video. Um, and once you've done that, that would be fed back into the inquiry team. And there'll, there'll be a pause. People who will, will be involved in the investigation process, and that will change and occasionally changes over time, will be called together in what's known as a forensic strategy meeting. And that will be include the procurator fiscal usually uh, because we work for the procurator fiscal. The procurator fiscal um, is the person who we answer to and will ultimately take this to court. It's worth taking a moment to unpack that relationship between the Procurator Fiscal and the investigations team, because it's a relationship which is unique to Scotland. I am Alex Prentice. I am the Principal Crown Counsel in Crown Office. Crown Office is headed by the Lord Advocate, who is responsible for the investigation of suspicious deaths and the prosecution of crime, amongst other things. In Scotland, the police investigate the case and report the results of their investigations to the Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service. The Procurator Fiscal is an official appointed with responsibility in relation to the investigation of deaths. Ultimately, the Lord Advocate is the head of the prosecution. In a suspicious death, an on-call procurator fiscal will be contacted and asked to attend at the scene, which he or she will do 
and will meet with the police officers on the scene. The fiscal doesn't carry out any investigation at the scene. That's done by the others, but he or she has an oversight of the circumstances. In a case like this, a forensic science team of biologists, chemists, others would come in and they would carry out their work. Very often there will be a forensic strategy meeting, which means that the procurator fiscal will meet with those expert witnesses or skilled witnesses, as we call them, and identify the areas which would be productive in the investigation. Let's return to the scene and imagine that we are those skilled witnesses. As we hear more about the scene in detail, where do you think the investigative team should be considering gathering forensic evidence? Chief Constable John Howard Semple has now arrived, so let's pick up the story with him. The hall where the body was found was in a very disordered state and bore evidence of a desperate struggle having taken place. I noted that there was a telephone wall instrument in the hall and that the telephone wires connecting it had been cut. Being satisfied with these that Miss Milne had been murdered, I gave instructions that the body was not to be touched or anything in the house disturbed. I then went to the nearest telephone and got into communication with Dr Sturrock, Brotty Ferry, the police surgeon, informed him that Miss Milne had been found dead in her house at Elmgrove and asked him to meet me there at the earliest possible moment. At the same time, I got in touch by telephone with W.F. McIntosh, Esquire, the Procurator Fiscal for Forfarshire at Dundee, and informed him of what I had found. While waiting for the police surgeon to arrive, I made a further examination of the hall. I observed on the third step from the hall floor a large stain of blood on the stair carpet. The sides of the stair railings at the foot of the stair and on the wall to the right of the stairs were bespattered with blood. I saw blood-stained hairs adhering to the railings. On the hall floor near to the foot of the stairs were three large bloodstains on the carpet. There was also a smaller bloodstain on the carpet near the entrance to the drawing room. Near to the body were two pieces of false hair produced. Lying on the floor, within a foot of the feet of the body, was part of a gold earring produced. Another gold earring and small gold brooch produced were lying about two feet six inches from the body near the centre room door. A lorgnette produced was lying on the floor close beside her back. A gold brooch produced was lying on the clothing at the back of the body. An upper set of false teeth produced was lying on the right-hand corner of the doormat at the entrance to the drawing room, three feet nine inches from the body. A lower set of false teeth produced was lying on the third step of the stairs within nine inches of the left-hand side wall of the stair. A hair pad produced was lying at the back of the body. A glass vase produced was lying on the floor near the head of the body, which had been knocked off the small table shown in the photograph. A silver vase produced was lying on the floor about two feet from the body. 
a broken gas globe, bloodstained, produced, was lying on a flower plate between the drawing room door and entrance to the main hall. Some withered bay branches were lying on the floor in the corner between the dining room and the middle doors, and lying on top of these branches was a lady's hat and hat pin, produced. The inside of the hat was very much stained with blood. The hat pin was bent to the shape of the head as if the deceased had been wearing the hat and pin when she received the blows on the head. There was also a tin box, unlocked, a travelling case, open, two handbags, shut, on the south side of the hall between the middle room door and the dining room door. A cardboard box containing lace was on the floor beside the open travelling case. The hall floor was bestrewn with burnt matches, produced. A pair of gardener's pruning scimitars, produced, were lying on the table to the south side of the main hall. These scimitars may have been used for cutting the telephone wires. A metal knob of a poker, produced, was found underneath some withered bay branches lying at the side of the wall beside the left side of the stair. On this knob were bloodstains and two or three fair hairs adhering to it. A metal poker, minus the head, produced, was lying on a round table to the right of the stair. On this poker were stains of blood with fair hairs adhering to it. The knob of the poker referred to evidently belongs to this poker as it completely fits the fracture. There are six steps in the stair leading to the first turning. From there, there are nine steps to the next turning and on the square flat landing, there was lying a green curtain rope produced, similar to the rope with which the deceased's legs were tied. The bloodstained trimming of hat produced was lying partly underneath the deceased's body. The stone produced was found lying inside the door of the cloakroom. The carving fork produced was found on the floor near the body, the prongs being partly under the open travelling case. The prongs and bone handle of the fork were bloodstained. I made this examination pending the arrival of Dr Sturrock. I also gave instructions to Mr T.K. Rodden, the Borough Surveyor, to come to Elmgrove to take certain measurements and also to Mr Roger, photographer, to take certain photographs produced. When Dr Sturrock reached Elmgrove at 11 o'clock forenoon, I pointed out all these things to him. I then, with the doctor, made a more minute examination of the body. There's a lot to take in. So let's pause and walk back over some of those details with Professor Nevenick Dade. And so what did they find? Well, they, they came across a whole raft of different evidence types, as we would name them um, today in the modern day. Jean Milne was found lying in her hallway, and they describe fairly well in, in the, the picture of what that looks like, where her positioning was within the hallway, where she was in relation to the staircase. They went on to describe a catalogue almost of different blood patterning or blood staining. They also described some of the personal effects that were found quite close to the body, including, for example, both the upper and lower false teeth 
and where they were in relation to where the body was. They described how telephone wires were cut. And they described also other types of items that were on the floor in the environment of the body. So things like vases and a stone and various other bits and pieces. So the point of this is that even from now, when I was reading this description, I began to draw what that crime scene looked like. And I, because of the description that was provided, I could make a sketch of where the body was and the items that were found within its immediate environment, many of them personal items to the victim. Why is this important? Well, it, it's important because forensic science and the use of science in criminal investigations starts at the crime scene. We have a, a, a saying sometimes when we talk about crime scene investigation, and that is you have to get it right the first time because by your um, activities, the investigator's activities at that scene, you begin to alter things and you begin to change things. And so observation, hands in pockets, not touching, just looking is the first place to start. Crime scene investigation and a lot of forensic science is all about recreating the past. It's about using our tools to look at items that are recovered from a scene where a death such as this has occurred and then using the scientific tools to try to recreate that event as it happened. And so there's a richness of information that was captured by those first three police officers that has really painted the picture of this scene and of, you know, of how then subsequently items of evidence may become relevant. The Jean Milne case and that scene it was very forensically rich. The scene itself, it's not just classed as one big scene. You can have separate scenes. So the body itself is classed as a scene also because that's something that you know contains evidence, um, sometimes the best evidence. Um, it may well be that the, the actual incident didn't take place where the body is. It may, there may be another scene within the house in another room. Um, so you, you're thinking, you need to keep an open mind and stay quite objective and you're thinking about all these things. Um, you're trying to interpret the scene from the signs of the disturbance, from items that were falling over, the position of the body, to try and give you a clue as to how you know the incident might have taken place and how they may have succumbed to their injuries. And everybody will get together and discuss discuss what's been seen because information will be collected by those first responders, any photographs. So the crime scene examiners will usually have gone along and, and taken some photographs and bring them to that briefing. And you'll discuss what approach is going to be taken. So because some forensic evidence is more uh, vulnerable to contaminations and to loss, so DNA, for example, fingerprints, some chemicals, they'll those scientists will be given priority about entry um, into the scene. Uh, recording the scene before anything is touched is obviously vital. So how you do that recording without disturbing any evidence, how you identify where the evidence is, how you're going to progress, who's going to take um, what turn, who's going to be a priority to enter the scene and to record and to, to uh, recover evidence will all be discussed at that forensic strategy meeting. And it depends on um, the case, obviously, but sometimes there'll be a natural stop point and there'll be another forensic strategy meeting where, again, that discussion will be held a second time or even a third. It'll depend, and it depends uh, completely on the case. But that is a hugely important time because 
what you have there is a time where everybody's coming together and chatting and discussing and saying, right, this is what I see, this is what... And obviously things change as a dynamic situation because you may get there and find things are slightly different. Um, you may discover, things might be discovered, more information may come along because whilst you're going to the scene, the police will be starting their inquiries. So they'll be going, doing their door-to-door, doing their role in relation to, to their inquiries. And that will also feed into the information you have at the scene so you also get the chance there so uh, where you're working with people who are not scientists so or specialists um, you can discuss so it may be in that situation the fiscal the procurator fiscal will turn around and say so what is it that you can do for me what is it that you can add to this and you can discuss so here um, I may be able to find this I may be able to identify that if I see um, X, Y, or Z, I'll pull a stop because that means that um, there's there's something that we need to consider and we'll come back to the meeting. So it's that time where you can actually have that conversation and that dynamic conversation. And then you go to the scene and start to gather the evidence. If this was con- a contemporary case, well, without doubt, um, the very first thing we'd be looking at is DNA. A DNA evidence really only became part of the forensic science toolbox in the mid-1980s. And that's not just in the UK, but globally. Uh, the UK led the development of um, what we now call um, a DNA fingerprinting in the mid-1980s. And it would be used in, it, it, well, it is used in almost every uh, case that you can now imagine. And it would most certainly have been used in this case. We'll be returning to look at DNA in detail in a later episode of the Inside Forensic Science podcast because it represents perhaps the greatest shift in terms of science since the Jean Milne case. But what other areas would our contemporary crime scene manager want to consider at the scene? Today we would look around for um, what we call blood pattern analysis, um, which is biologists interpret um, blood spatter and, and patterns and that can give us an indication to where um, a body has been struck um, where it's been landed or you know the positions of, of the, the victim and the perpetrator um, so that can give us an indication to what's taken place Well the very best information that you can get from BPA is it'll almost give you a complete narrative on activities that have taken place once blood has started to be lost and injuries have been sustained. Joe Millington is a forensic scientist who specialises in bloodstain pattern analysis, or BPA. I mean, those cases are, you probably consider they're quite rare because you're never going to be able to completely define every single action. But it often can give you enough information that you can piece it together to give a reasonably full view on how things may have developed and taken place. On the carpet produced number 18, there is another stain of blood where deceased's head was resting. On the carpet of the stair on the third step was another large stain of blood. Even one blood stain can give you a little bit of information, but collectively in this scene, we've got such a, a, a sort of extensive distribution that you can you can hook various activities to to each of those and it and it provides a really kind of visual imagery about how this attack 
developed after after she sustained injuries. It's clear from the detail in the evidence files that the investigating officers were very careful to note the blood at the scene and its location in relation to the body. As we'll hear in later episodes of Inside Forensic Science podcast, we may be more systematic and scientific in our approach to BPA nowadays, but in fact the idea of using blood patterning as a way to interpret events goes back to way before Jean Milne's time. It's actually been around for some time. I mean, if you read the Bible and or you know early Shakespeare, then there are references to blood stains and how they can almost give a narrative to to an event and and maybe somebody's injuries, etc. If if you look at the kind of the academic side of it, then um, there are references to it from 1500s onwards, I suppose, as a discipline. Um, the most the most useful references start around 1895 or so. Um, the, there was a really cool piece of work done by this guy called Edward Petrowski, um, if you forgive the pronunciation, but um, he essentially... Um, he anaesthetized a, a number of um, rabbits and then he bludgeoned them to death, which, I mean, is pretty horrendous when you think about it. But the, the knowledge that came out of those experiments was absolutely fascinating because after he'd injured these animals, he, um, he sat down and he sketched methodically every single blood stain that had been created as a result of these, these activities. And, and, and that almost gave us a really good footing on how to interpret and and observe and record bloodstains created as a result of violent actions. And that's that's really all we're doing. We're looking at patterns of bloodstains to help to try and elucidate how those bloodstains were created and hopefully then reconstruct events, perhaps leading to somebody's death. So while BPA may have evolved it was very much a focus for the Brawty Ferry officers, as you can see for yourself if you go and read through the evidence files. One area which hasn't changed much since Jean Milne's time is the analysis of tool marks. Which again may have had relevance here uh, in the cutting of the telephone wires. The two telephone wires were cut, the wire coming down perpendicular the wall to the instrument. Said wires produced number 21. And tool mark comparison is usually done using a microscope and usually done by simply looking at the marks under a microscope that are made by a suspected tool on perhaps a piece of exemplar material, so a, a, a piece of wire where you use the tool to cut the wire and make a set of test marks. And then you look at the suspect mark, in this case, the mark on our telephone wire, and you, you look at, you compare them against each other to see if you can see similarities or you can see differences. And that's the way we still do it today. So in that case, there hasn't really been much advancement in over 100 years. Um, there are other aspects, perhaps around the examination of fibres and hairs, that equally have developed and evolved as technology has evolved. That's the case for fibres. It's not so much the case for hairs. And so hairs, we still look at the morphology, what it looks like under a microscope to try to determine is the, the, that microscopic, um, those microscopic characteristics, are they the same in the hair from an individual that we pluck or that we take so we know where the sample comes from and the hair that we recover from an item, for example, in this case, the poker. 
a metal poker, minus the head, produced, was lying on a round table to the right of the stair. On this poker were stains of blood, with fair hairs adhering to it. Where you're trying to determine, could the hair on the poker have come from Jean Milne, or has it come from somewhere else, or somebody else? And so that um, type of uh, examination is done by microscopy, where you look at the hairs under the microscope and you look at some of the features within the hair and see are they comparable with each other. But of course, back then, um, as to a certain degree now, um, we don't know what the natural variation of these characteristics within human hair is and how variable it is within one individual or across multiple individuals. Nowadays, what we would do with human hair, if there's a, a root still present on the hair, is we would just send it for DNA analysis. At 5pm, the body was lifted onto a shell as it was lying on the floor without disturbing the clothing. At 5.13pm, I accompanied witness Cooley to the mortuary in Dundee and had the body placed there for the purpose of having a post-mortem examination by Professor Sutherland and Drs Sturrock and Templeman. And one of the differences between the Jean Milne case and uh, what would happen today is that the body was removed very quickly in, in that case. And I can understand that. And it's, it, is, it is hugely understandable because what you don't want to do is to have somebody who is is lying um, deceased um, and you working around them. It's quite um, a stressful thing to happen. And if you don't know what evidence you might lose, um, which they wouldn't have been, been aware of because they have the less, they hadn't got DNA um, and that sort of technology in those days, removing the bodies uh, that quickly is perfectly understandable. Today, it would have taken us, more work would have been done in relation to gathering of evidence and gathering of samples before the body was removed. Because there is so much that we can detect, because there are so so much that we can um, find in relation to hairs, fibres, DNA, um, fingerprints, um, it would have taken longer. It would take longer for the body to be removed, probably um, in a modern investigation. For blood pattern specialist Joe Millington, it's not the potential for DNA, fibre, hair or tool analysis that caught her attention as she walked her way through the crime scene evidence files. If you're investigating this, there would, there would be this raft of potential evidence available to us. And to be honest, I would say, do you know what, just park that for 20 minutes because when you look in the scullery, there's a towel which has blood staining on it which is right next to an apparent finger mark or handprint on the on the tabletop, I think. Chief Constable Semple found towel produced number 29 in scullery off kitchen. This towel had one spot of blood thereon and was slightly discoloured, as if it had been used to dry some person's hands. I think the assailant has washed their hands there. My goodness me, you would be right on that. <laughs> you know, that, that, that towel, that little towel there, which is so innocuous in the, in the grand scheme of things and all this big distribution of blood stains. That's it, that's the, that's the ticket. You do the fingerprints in blood on the tabletop, that could potentially link it to a potential assailant. We look at the towel for various bits and bobs, including DNA, which of course wouldn't have been available to them at the time. But nowadays, that would be the absolute focus of the investigation in terms of who, what, why and when, really. 
amazing. So who was Jean Milne? What happened to her? Why would anyone want to kill her? And when did all this take place? In the next episode of Inside Forensic Science podcast, we'll find out more about Jean Milne and the role she played in the Dundee of 1912. It's difficult to get an impression on on her as a person because we're only hearing about her through the eyes and the words of other people, right? So you can't necessarily jump to any conclusion about poor old Jean Milne. So she was perceived, I think, perhaps at the time to be somebody who was just a little bit different from those in the community around her. You get the idea that there's been a lot of gossip, that she doesn't really engage with people in the community, particularly in Bronte Ferry. I thought she sounded like an amazing woman of her time, to be honest. If I have to be completely honest, she was obviously independent. She obviously didn't worry too much about what people thought of her. I think she sounded like an amazing character. It's a terribly sad end to an interesting life, uh, and she obviously liked to travel, she had her own interests, she was a bit of a recluse at her home, but uh, an interesting person. And of course, all these many years later, we're all discussing her personal affairs, which is rather sad, really. But she came to a horrible end, and it's a great tragedy. No one was ever called to account for that. In Inside Forensic Science, Sergeant John Forbes was played by Andrew Thompson and Chief Constable Semple by Mark Stephen. The researcher is Heather Duran and consultant Pauline Mack. The narrator was me, Penny Latin. The Inside Forensic Science podcast is an adventurous audio limited production for the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee and is funded by the Leverhulme Trust. <laughs> <laughs>